Welcome back to the Online Learning Minute at Market Scale. I'm your host, Brian Runo, and today I'm joined by a very special guest, Mr. Kevin Hogan from the podcast Remote Possibilities. Kevin, welcome on. We're a pleasure to have you. Brian, thanks very much for having me. Thank you so much, Kevin. So, Kevin, you have a very long history and you've just joined Market Scale as a podcast host, as a blog contributor. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Well, I've just spent uh, my career writing about the intersection of business and technology uh, and at the, the danger of dating myself. Uh, it's been over two decades. Uh, some of my first articles involved uh, questions on whether or not email would work in corporate America. So uh, I've been around the block a while, uh, focused on education technology for the past 15 years uh, and remote learning being a big part of that uh, coverage. So uh, whatever, what got you into talking about ed tech and uh, e-learning in general? Well, it really became when I, uh, when I became the executive editor for Scholastic Administrator back in 2003, uh, the focus uh, of that magazine was on how school districts can implement technology into schools. Um, lots of different aspects on that. Uh, remote learning was always something that was kind of in the future, right? That uh, eventually we'll be doing this, almost kind of a, a sci-fi aspect to it. Uh, and as we see in the past 10 weeks, we've gone from sci-fi into uh, a harsh reality. Yeah, I mean, I know like in 2003, um, I was still, I think, in middle school at that time. And we were just learning how to do uh, typing and stuff. And we were using games like Oregon Trail to learn about history. Um, but like you've really seen from the times when like uh, people were doing correspondence courses and stuff as well, um, haven't you? Absolutely. And even just the idea of using, um, you know, conference, video conferencing, right? I mean, it was still really kind of wonky. It didn't work very well. Uh, it's only been the, the past couple years um, that it's become solid state. And thank God it, it, it did or else we'd be uh, really in a sticky wicket right now. I mean, I would definitely say that we are kind of in a sticky wicket a little bit just because um, I remember even a couple of months ago when this whole COVID thing started that there were, I don't know, I was talking to some coworkers uh, previously at Northwestern and they were saying how they had to basically teach a whole bunch of faculty members how to you know, utilize uh, remote lesson planning and Zoom and Canvas for their you know, purposes and whatnot. And I mean, I don't think that universities necessarily are truly still prepared. Um, what do you think about that? I I agree with you. Um, you know, Zoom has gotten some criticism of late, especially in the, uh, the K-12 space. A lot of districts don't want to use it because of the security uh, issues, which otherwise then are called Zoom bombing, right? You just give the link to somebody else and they can show up and uh, disrupt classes. Uh, at the university level or, or wherever. I, I would say, though, that uh, Zoom has uh, performed the function of being uh, the great beta test for society right now. I've Zoomed with my parents. Um, my parents are Zooming with their friends. Uh, it's, it's become a great connector uh, and forced people who said, yeah, you know what, I don't need, I don't need a video conference. Well, yeah, you do. So, you know, there are a lot of other tools out there. I mean, Google Meet is another one, obviously, that people have been using. And um, thankfully, they've, they open it up um, for free. I mean, that was a kind of a, a common good uh, on the part of Google. So kudos to them. Um, but 
come this fall, we'll see more sophisticated technologies that are going to have to be put in place if this remote learning stuff is going to work. But I mean, even with doing like video conferencing and Zoom conferencing and whatnot, I mean, I just did a Zoom conference with my wife's family. I think it was Rosh Hashanah um, was the holiday that just happened. And we did the whole dinner and everything through Zoom. But I mean, doesn't Zoom and this whole notion of remote teaching in this fashion kind of just seem like an evolution of Sage on a stage instead of it being true personalized e-learning? I definitely think that's the case when you get over a certain number of uh, people on a call. Um, I've watched my own daughter. She's, she's back from Fordham University. They have relatively small classes, right? So, um, you know, if you have maybe a dozen people and everyone takes a turn in conversations, we're, we're, we're learning our own dynamics on how to make it work. But if you're at a big state school and you're doing intro to psych and you have 500 students in a classroom, that's just, you're right, it's total sage on the stage and, and it won't work. I mean, I know that one of my friends who uh, he's finishing up his degree right now, um, he was saying that like he would turn on his uh, Zoom lecture and then, you know, because it's a whole bunch of students on there, um, you know, with the video turned off and microphone turned off just listening to the professor speak i mean he's basically just logging in on time every single day and he's playing call of duty while he's muted and the professor can't see that he's doing that yeah yeah no it's uh there will need to be safeguards and expectations of of behavior right that that are going to need to happen um on the flip side of that there have been some amazing um instances of uh, education happening because of the technology. Um, my son, he's a sophomore in high school and he rose for his, uh, his school's team. The coach got an Olympic rower um, who was scheduled to be rowing in, in Tokyo next month uh, to talk to the team about the loss that he suffered as a result of all of this business. And it gave those guys some, you know, perspective on the losses that they've had and not being able to have a sports season. Um, other examples of celebrities, just, you know, reading books to kids, <laughs> Michelle Obama reading uh, to kids online that never would have happened otherwise. Uh, so you know, there's some good with the bad and I, I'm hopeful that we'll figure all this out. Yeah, I'm definitely hopeful. And I know that I spoke with uh, Rich Henderson from Lenovo in a previous episode of the Online Learning Minute, and he was saying that um, because of COVID-19 that we've gone like five years into the future now because we've had to with online learning. And I mean, I guess that's another positive aspect that we can see with all this. Definitely. You know, the, uh, the evolution, but it was an evolution, right? I mean, over <clears throat> say the, the past 10 years, uh, since uh, or 12 years since everyone uh, received their iPhone and that kind of changed culture. It's been something that has been slow moving. Um, the curve has certainly been accelerated. Yeah, I mean, I remember when I first started developing online classes when I got out of grad school, um, what was that, maybe six years ago? Um, one of the biggest concerns was making sure that uh, we developed courses that required very low bandwidth. So like, not too much uh, media, um, only when really necessary, and a lot more focused on the writing aspects of that and like reading case studies. And now uh, working at market scale, I'm seeing that the trend has definitely gone towards a lot more 
uh, videos, like um, instructional videos uh, here and there, and um, a lot more multimedia usage just because bandwidth in general was like one of the biggest barriers. Correct. Correct. No, I mean, it, it does seem that there is an infrastructure in place, although I will point out that uh, <clears throat> what we've noticed in the, in the education space is not everyone has this infrastructure. Uh, and the, the digital equity, the ability for students to not only have a device in their home, but to have the bandwidth to have these sort of interactions that we're having right now, there's a gaping need um, to bring that back up to speed. Yeah. And I mean, I know that that's not just in like rural India and in like, you know, sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, that's in rural parts of the United States where they're still on like four or five megabit per second connections uh, through DSL or even satellite just because they can't really uh, they can't really have a dedicated fiber line or something. I mean, I'm fortunate enough in Texas here in Dallas, like home to AT&T, where I've got my own gigabit fiber line in a residential house, for instance. But I know that if I can go 10, 15 miles north of where I'm at, then that's just not there. That's right. And, you know, in, in New York City and in, in Philadelphia and in urban areas in Miami, um, they don't have the bandwidth either. I mean, Philadelphia has uh, Comcast as, as their headquarters. And thankfully, just a few weeks ago, um, they opened up uh, the access in an emergency aspect. Um, but there are kids who just who don't have the internet at home uh, three miles away from the headquarters of Comcast. So there, there's something that needs to be rectified there. And I'm hopeful that, uh, well, we've already seen the industry kind of come together and mobilize uh, in almost a warlike effort. And I just hope that that, um, that participation continues. Yeah, I mean, I almost feel like um, if there was ever a question about whether or not internet is a utility, then... Um, this can definitely strengthen the argument for saying that internet is indeed a utility with everybody working remotely um, and or even trying to find jobs remotely and trying to learn remotely. I mean, you know, it should be done like water, possibly. 100% correct. I agree. And I don't know how my other Texans are going to feel about that. But, um, <laughs> you know, that is me coming from Chicago originally. Um, I was up there for my whole life and just moved down here six months ago. So that might be another conversation we can have. Absolutely. But I think everyone's rethinking everything, aren't we? Yeah, definitely. So in terms of uh, where we're going with all this online learning, e-learning and whatnot, just based on the history of where we came from, like, where would you say that we're really going? That's a tough one, Brian. Um I believe it will be, um, I'll take the safe route here and say it's a, a somewhere in the middle between extremes, right? The idea that we're all going to be completely remote and uh, <clears throat> never never again in sort of a, 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 a physical space together in a learning environment, I, that's not going to happen. Uh, but likewise, I don't think you're going to see those 500 people lecture halls. Um, I think... And it won't be because of the virus itself. I think it will be because of lessons that we we learn because of these new uh, realities that we had to endure during this period of time. Uh, and we'll find things that worked. Um, I'll, I'll just another uh, personal example. We had a, a, a counseling session, a college counseling session uh, for my, my son, who's a sophomore in high school. Uh, and it went great, and it was through Google Meet, and we spoke with the with with the teacher, 
We talked for 45 minutes. Um, we shared documents over the internet, looked at transcripts, looked at possibilities, looked, used the web. And I, we got off of that call uh, that happened for 45 minutes. It's like, wow, well, we didn't have to drive a half an hour there and a half an hour back to, to perform the same task. So <clears throat> certain certain things will become more efficient because of this situation that we've had to go through. Uh, and then some things will go back to normal. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, in those 10 person classrooms where you're talking about something theoretical and you're using your hands or a lot of the technical training, um, you know, you're still going to have to get your hands dirty on learning how to do certain things. But those 500 person lecture halls, I kind of feel like universities are going to think to themselves, how can I really benefit from repurposing this room into something else and then just having the instructor be moved fully online at that point absolutely or there's a combination of you know maybe you have that star professor who still gives that uh, sage on the stage i mean there's there still is a point to have a, a sage on the stage right so if you have your superstar professor who gives the lecture and then you put the tas um in individual chat sessions um through the course of a of a semester, uh, that might be something that's more efficient than, I mean, already, I mean, they're, they're recording uh, professors, right? And then you can go and listen to the lecture anyway, even after it's happened. Um, I think there's uh, lots of different possibilities there, but I don't, I don't think it's an extreme um, one way or the other. Yeah. I mean, I think like within the next two to three years, we're really going to see a huge major shift and then things going to kind of going to slow down in terms of the evolution again. But uh, definitely, I mean, one of the biggest things I can think of is like in K-12 education. I think that one of the biggest parts of K-12 education isn't necessarily the teaching itself, but like learning how to socially interact with your peers. But like at the university level, you're you're expected to basically learn a whole bunch of knowledge and most of that knowledge nowadays, I mean, it's available f for free from courses on like Coursera, Udemy, Khan Academy. I mean, do you think that the value of a college degree might go down with seeing how all of these things can just be learned remotely now um, at the college level? Uh, well, I wrote on MarketScale uh, a few days ago about that that topic. Um, when I talked about it a little bit, like the value of that sheepskin saying that you graduated from a, a certain uh, higher ed institution might go down uh, and it'll be more important to see what programs you took at that university. So instead of saying, well, I graduated from MIT, you say I graduated from or, uh, this program from Caltech. Uh, this this program that this professor put together at Berkeley, and I did it remotely, but I also probably went there for a few days for an in-person symposium, uh, and trickle that down from you know just the Ivy League stuff to realities of, you know what, <clears throat> I went to the University of Indiana, but I also took this program at this local university that's next to the uh, Caterpillar plant that is specific in machine part manufacturing. Right, and I, I took a three D modeling course in there, and I got that program. So it will be more of a, of a, a, a hybrid uh, of different experiences that you've had as a student. Maybe that's mixed in with some work that will make you a more valuable um, 
employee or uh, it would help accelerate your career more than just saying, I went to this school or I went to that school. So it's more of an evolution of the old phrase, it's not the grades you make, it's the hands you shake. It's really about the grades you make now, possibly, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that was one of the big things I always told um, high school seniors when they were moving on to college is more that it's about the hands you shake and not the grades you make. Um, And C's get degrees. Um, But I mean, like with all this online learning that's available now and just all the personalization, like with Khan Academy, it'll tell you like four or five different ways on how to solve a specific math problem. Um, Do you kind of see that as being a potential evolution so that we have more personalized individual e-learning? I definitely think that that the e-learning world is going to accelerate when it comes to personalized learning. Yeah. Artificial intelligence technologies will will come into play a lot more. Uh, The assessment abilities to track someone as they are learning through, say, a Khan Academy style um, will accelerate as well. Um, It gets complicated when you talk about public education, though. Uh, I mean, how you take um, standardized curricula and apply it into an individual learning path. Then you add in also you know, the idea of, of special needs um, and some of those other kind of, you know, traditional aspects. Um, and then it, be, it's, it becomes complicated. Yeah, I mean, I know, like, there's a lot of localization that happens with a lot of uh, K-12 education. Like, in, I think it's, like, Vermont or something, they do a chainsaw or, like, a woodsman class. Um and then in Alaska, they'll do some stuff like about how to survive out in the cold. Um, whereas like in Texas, and um, I actually just had this conversation with one of my coworkers who grew up here, and they definitely teach uh, the Civil War uh, very differently between Chicago and Texas. Like, how are you? How do you think that the courses would then be standardized across the country? Whereas like with you can go 20 miles to a different school district and courses are taught completely differently. It's going to be a harsh reality for, for curriculum developers. That's for sure. I mean, is it going to look like how, um, I mean, I was at the end of the old school form of learning math, but I've got a little daughter now and I know for a fact that she's probably going to end up learning math through the common core method. And I, I'm not going to be able to help her as well as I could if they just kept math the same. Exactly. Yeah. But you'll be able to go online and, and find someone who will. Right. Exactly. I'll be able to go on Khan Academy and then say, hey, here's Uncle Sal. Check this out. Yeah. Watch this. Yeah. <laughs> and then you have to watch it too. Oh, God. Yeah. I just, yeah. So, just so I. The, like the idea of lifelong learning is something that um, has been kind of accelerated here in this new environment. I mean, we've had some fun here at home talking about the first world war and uh, my youngest was is having his remote class and they were talking about world war one uh the teacher recommended the movie 1917 so we all sat down and watched it and had a good discussion and uh old man that i am was like you know what this reminded me of uh stanley kubrick's paths of glory uh and all we had to do was google it and look it up i think it was on netflix or an amazon prime uh 
and all of our minds were blown. The first 15 minutes of Paths of Glory, starring Kirk Douglas in the 1950s, pretty much uh, looked exactly like 1917's first 15 minutes. So I guess the vice versa, right? 1917 looked just like Paths of Glory. Uh, so there we were sitting at home on a Friday night at, at 10 o'clock talking about um, not only World War One but also uh, the history of cinematography. So you look at it, it's like we're... We're kind of all learning, and the, and the technology enables that to happen without it seeming boring, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's kind of part of the shift of, like, online learning moving from, well, I mean, originally, you know, distance learning was considered, like, correspondence courses where somebody would send a book, like, you read it and fill out a workbook and mail it back, but then I think it was, like, in the 80s or 90s, that's when online learning was basically doing the same thing, and now you're learning through multimedia mostly right right and the multimedia and you don't even think about it because it's 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 solid state uh, maybe your wi-fi goes down once in a while but other than that um you have access to all the information in the world all the information in the history of the world at your fingertips uh and with the proper guidance you can um take some really terrific learning paths no matter who you are definitely but, you know, you did mention um, lifelong learning. And, I mean, we've been talking a lot about K-12 and higher ed. But with lifelong learning, I know that every single company out there needs to train new employees on, you know, new products that they've come up with or new processes. And they need to onboard people and get them to learn the culture and everything. So how do you think that's going to change um, with the rise of e-learning um, that's happening right now? I think it's it's another, uh, that's going to be a huge uh, cost benefit for corporations. So especially when it comes to, you know, onboarding new employees or going through various, you know, procedures. Uh, I think it's, it's sexual harassment has been one that I know from my own experience that has gone online uh, for the past several years and you go through the coursework. Um, but if you're a new employee, maybe they flew you to, um, uh, you know, on-site training for five days or four days and then flew you back. That's not going to happen anymore, right? I mean, you, you can't go anywhere now, <laughs> but you can still, um, I just went through my onboarding training with MarketScale in, in the past week and uh, it was it was slick and efficient and I didn't necessarily need to fly to Dallas. I wouldn't mind flying to Dallas and having, you know, three or four days in a nice hotel and uh, meeting employees face to face, but uh, the realities are what the realities are, and um, you know, hopefully that will happen eventually. But uh, right now, we're using these tools to their best advantage. Yeah, I mean, like I don't know. Have you ever seen the movie Up in the Air with George Clooney and Anna Kendrick? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you know how I mean, obviously that's you know that's not training. That's you know remotely firing people. But I mean. With all those guys who were doing that, um, doing those big things, like big life-changing events, but doing it remotely, I think the word they use is glocal. So, yeah. I mean, I think, though, like one of the things that you just can't 100% replace is that human connection, um, just being in a room with other people and being able to read them. I mean, maybe one day when virtual reality gets good enough, um, that can be emulated, but I mean, that's one of the big challenges that's happening right now. No, I think we'll just, 
it will be those events will be much more discreet. Um, I know just for myself and um, the events, uh, I was previously content director for Tech and Learning Magazine, uh, and we would have leadership events around the country. We'd have them five or six times a year, and other district executives would, would fly in together. Uh, and they were fantastic. And there, you know, amazing things would come out of that group think. Um, there just might not be as many as there used to be. And we'll, we'll talk about the good old days. I hope not. <clears throat> and I hope in uh, you know three years we'll be back to having you know, inf- Infocom and, and Consumer Electronics uh, Showcase and, and, and all the rest of it. But it's not happening this year. Yeah. Well, I mean, at least though, um, a lot of companies are doing things to mitigate that. Like they're taking the budgets that they had for going to all those conferences. And we've actually had a big response from uh, a lot of clients with ours using Brand Live in order to um, get their word out and get their messaging out. Yeah. And it will be um, interesting to see just in the ed tech space, there are two virtual events. EdTechX is happening next week. And then Cozen. Um, which was the first in-person event that was canceled, and I was crushed because I'd been going to it for 15 years. It was kind of a highlight uh, of the ed tech uh, community uh, during the year. Uh, they're going to go for it online in three weeks, and we'll, we'll see how it goes. All right. Well, we're almost at the half-hour mark now, so maybe to wrap things up, um, what would you say would be – your ideal three to five years from now vision for online learning? My hope would be in five years, we're back on airplanes, we're back going to events, maybe not as many, uh, but that these tools become almost uh, invisible, that we're not talking about new models and you know the what ifs, that the what ifs have become, this is, this is what's happening. Um, and that they've just become part of an environment where many more people have the advantages of using these tools. So from that that kid in in rural Georgia to that you know that university student who's at UC Davis, but who goes home and you know wasn't able to log into classes this year, would be able to do that. That definitely sounds. I mean, I definitely think that it sounds feasible. I want to try and possibly, as much as I can, push the industry to be uh, fully remote uh, where applicable as well. And that's certainly what my hope is with uh, the podcast, Remote Possibilities, is to look at the industry and engage the industry to be the leaders uh, in this transformation. Because I don't think we can uh, rely on anyone else to do it. I guess um, once all this ends, we're going to see what's stuck to the wall. Um, And then whatever does stick, then we're going to make sure that that's uh, probably going to be the new standard and the new normal. Absolutely. Well, I guess um, that's a wrap. Thank you so much for joining us, Kevin. Uh, That was your online learning minute at market scale. Stay tuned to the next episode where we can learn more about the intersection of technology and education. Thank you so much. Thank you, Brian.